I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, for an increasing number of non-believers, poetry provides joy, insight, and wisdom. Brilliant, sensitive, spiritual, poetic people have built a world of art and love and ideas. We just need to take that little extra step and see that all of it is a kind of poetic practice. And later, a personal reflection on suicidality. Most of us, when we're in that place, we're just feeling desperate. And I'm telling you, you're loved. Just like with road rage, uh, you sometimes feel like, like, I wish, you know, I'd run that guy off the road if I could. But, you know, you're not actually murderous. And I'm saying when you have these suicidal feelings, to brush them away with the same note, that's not the thing. Discovering humanity, community, and love through art and poetry. My conversation with Jennifer Michael Hecht on her search for wonderment. That's coming up on Life Examined. Navigating everyday life can be challenging, and it's no wonder that throughout history, religion has played a pivotal role in providing a pathway through life's challenges. It gives us a sense of calm, belonging, and forgiveness. But as we've talked about often on this program, for those who are non-believers, there's other ways to live happily, other ways to find comfort and guidance. We look to nature for awe and wonder, adopt rituals like meditation or exercise to quell a spiritual thirst— often replacing customs established centuries ago by organized religions. But even the most ardent non-believers yearn for some of the things that religion has to offer, traditions and rituals, community and humanity. We often look for ways to describe something we hold most sacred, words to describe something utterly indescribable. In her latest book called The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives, Poet and philosopher Jennifer Michael Hecht ponders that question and looks to poetry as a secular replacement. A poem for a wedding and funeral, for birth and death, joy and sadness. A collection of poems, Hecht says, is like, quote, a portable cathedral, providing, quote, a practical guide to a richer, more intentional life. And just a heads up that the following segment touches on her personal struggles with depression and suicidal thoughts. Jennifer Michael Hecht is a philosopher, historian, poet, and author, and she joins me now. Welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I know this is a big question for you because so much of your work is about it, but I want to explore just your relationship to faith or religion because in many ways, this book, I think, is asking some big questions about the role in which, well, faith plays in our lives, maybe in the non-believer sense, but in the way that texts and poetry can fill that certain space. But but first, I, I think I want our listeners to know where you're coming from and where some of these bigger questions developed in your own life. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great place to start. I was raised uh, Jewish in a very Catholic world in, on Long Island. Um, there were a lot of other Jewish kids, but, um, but it was... Uh, um, and also in in a very Protestant country, right? Most mm. of the media that I grew up around. So um, I I knew that my father didn't believe in God, but m- my mother was our sort of household religious person. And and yeah, I believed until I was twelve, is what my memory tells me. Um, and uh, had a kind of you know one of those moments that many of us have at some point where you just don't. Uh, you, you don't believe any of the things you've been told about who you are and where you are. And I'm a person who believes in reality to the extent that we can define it, science and reason and um, what 
what can be reproduced robustly in different mm -hmm. environments. That's what science means. Um, you, you, you're sure that it's real. And, uh, and yet my life takes place inside the human world. And my experience is, is led with my heart and my guts. And I um, have come to understand that um, I've come to understand all of that as a poetic way of understanding the world, mm. that, I, that I can be fully science and reason, and also say that without ever inventing, well, nonsense, without ever believing something that isn't uh, provable, is provable, mm -hmm. um, I, can, uh, I can align myself with poetry and say, yes, I live in the world of the heart, and the belly <laughs> and and what we feel is more important to me than anything else i wonder what the experience was of that 12 year old girl mm -hmm. because i think mm -hmm. it's it's one that maybe a lot of people have at different points in their life if they grew up in a religious household but then had yep. their own realization that for them religion may not be true or it doesn't feel right and i think you know you've talked about that 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 process can be one that is difficult emotionally it can be depressive it can produce anxiety it's it's not yeah. like the loss of faith is something that is is a relief it might actually be the opposite in certain well, ways well it's both mm. it's both um i i've read uh i've read so many memoirs and treatments and and his, histories um of different people at different times and places uh, throughout the world and throughout history uh, coming out of uh, belief. And it, I would say the dominant feeling is joy hmm. um, because so many religions uh, have been oppressive and that's when you really hear from the doubters and disbelievers because they feel like it's time to speak up. So um, yeah, people can be very scarred by religion and unbelievably happy to find out that this weird playground or rather not playground, let's say this weird stage is one where we make up the play as we go along. Though I would come to say that, you, that it's the group that makes meaning and, we, and we're not really responsible, each of us, to, to figure out our own. Um, but to come to understand how how we take part in the group, um, but yeah, for a twelve year old me, it was scary, and I was already sort of bookish and read and asked around, and my sense at that time was to be more overwhelmed by the variety than convinced by any of them, and um, or rather, you know. Rather, I felt that the variety of these philosophies of what it all meant all sort of canceled each other out because mm. there were too many. Um, and so I really was was at sea. And then I, um, this is such a magical moment. And I think I used to tell it very offhand. Now that I've written up in the book, it feels almost, I don't know, this is the first time I'm telling it, I guess, since I wrote it in the book. But but this is what happened. I I was in a junior high school library. I can picture the pine, um, fake sort of fake pine bookcases. Um, and I went over the poetry section and I took down this book that was um, really essentially, you know, poems for 
sad teenagers it mm. had some title like that like um you know i think it might have even had the word depression depression in the wor word i at a title i think i'm struggling with that because i don't think we would do that today but i think it was and um and and i was disappointed by all that i saw in there um but as i was rifling through the pages this this little glossy piece of paper from something else um wafted out of the pages and it was uh this beautiful rilke quote um i didn't know who rilke was at the time in fact i thought because his middle name was <laughs> maria that it was a woman I, mm. I i just read this little passage be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Reina Maria Rilke. Mm. That book is so full of incredible things, and and uh, yeah, what I just read to you is is in the introduction to my um, Wonder Paradox. Um, but there are some other things that he says uh, that I also had to quote in this book and and in my other books. Mm. Um, a wonderful writer. Yeah. What occurs to me when I, when I hear that poem, and when I also reflect on maybe what you are going through or others have gone through, is that, you know, moving from faith, say, into atheism or wherever is, is moving, in a sense, from certainty to a life of questions, right? It's, there's a major transition there. I, I, I wonder if that was on your mind as well, or if that comes through to you? It didn't take very long for me to to feel that religious people had just as many questions. Mm. Um, when I talked to religious people, uh, I found none of them believed exactly what the church or temple they belonged to said. Mm. They were all creative people who would laughingly say, oh, that part's not true. It's not like it's a hayride to be a believer. It's just a different, um, it's a different kind of set of troubles. Mm. Um, but for the non-believer, um, it can be a whole range of experiences. Uh, but one of the things is, uh, in this particular moment in history, uh, it's a little lonely because we haven't found a language for talking about how, how art and beauty and love and family, but also virtue and morality and that includes saving the planet and saving people who you don't necessarily naturally feel a connection with um, those big ideals and art and love they have to be seen as what they are which is they're a system of approaching the world um and I, I, all i'm saying about it is that it's poetic realism mm -hmm. you know it's just what's real but 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 we want to talk about the love and meaning side of it. And and let's face it, the idea God generates meaning, how deep is that? Mm. I mean, wh 
what kind of meaning could it be with babies dying, suffering and dying? What kind of meaning am I going to get to God? And he tells me, oh, it was worth that ridiculous nothingness. No, I reject the idea that this whole place has a natural morality. Uh, I find it almost offensive. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but I don't much think about that. What I think about is that, that without, with, in losing religion, maybe we, don't, maybe we don't lose religion. Maybe losing God has made us lose too many other things that the rest of the culture is doing a sort of catch as catch can um, to give us what we need. Yeah, the museums are there and yeah, um, we have holidays where we talk about love and family, but there's no connecting of the big feelings that we can get from nature and art with the pondering about meaning that we do. Uh, usually, usually the non-religious idea is that we each make our own meaning, that the meaning that we share when holidays come along is just sort of love and family, specifically just mm -hmm. family. And if you dig any deeper, people start crying. You know, it's it's it feels like, oh, this place is for nothing and the sun is going to eat the earth. Well, we've overdone that, okay? The sun is going to expand and take over the earth in billions and billions of years. It is exactly as if it's never going to happen. Forget about it. And climate change is happening, is a disaster. We will lose lives. We will have to restructure things. And what it's doing to the natural world and, and the sentient animals is unbearable. Mm -hmm. But this planet is not about to die. A retirement plan cannot include the apocalypse. Folks, we're going to be here in 100 years. We're still going to be doing Shakespeare in 200 years. We are part of a vibrant story of humanity. Yeah, and I think you very early on talk about in this book that you, know, you started to think about the ways that rituals and readings work together. And I think anybody who's been a part of any faith tradition would recognize the importance of, of text, of words, yeah. Of, yeah. of the ways in which those words are assembled and the forms that they're assembled and the, the moments in which they are revealed and brought to a community. Yeah. And there is something very powerful about that. And that's, I think, you know, crosses a lot of cultures and civilizations. So um, this kind of, I think, begins taking us into this new book, and maybe you can begin to then explain a little bit about how you see this correlation between, you know, whether it's community or ritual or meaning or values and the power of text. Yeah, uh, that was wonderful. People who read a lot of poetry remember probably about 12 to 20, and those poems come back to them and and they come into their minds unbidden when they need them, or they turn to them when they need them. They have a poem for love. They have a poem or two for death and loss that they've processed over and over. And then when the time comes, that poem is there. And what I'm saying is people don't have to be poetry readers to have such a collection. You can, without much fanfare, look around, choose a poem for Christmas, Choose a poem for your birthday. Choose a poem for, for love when it feels good and one when love is on the rocks. Um, 
choose a poem to think about death when you're freaked out about death and you wish you weren't alone with it and you can't imagine it. Well, if you if you're reading a poem now that you can imagine yourself reading if someone close to you passed away, you are at least slightly prepared and you have something to do. And that's what a lot of religious ritual and text is. Um, but I love the way you put it. Um, those things go together, texts and music and a bodily physical ritual. Um, I always remind people with something like shame, you know, if you want to wash your hands, you can't just think about it. Your hands won't get clean. And if you, if you want to feel differently, you might have to stand up and do something. Um, I'm not saying you do, but you might, mm -hmm. and you might find it powerful. Um, that's what, that's so much of that kind of thinking. It has been handled by religion in in the country I live in for quite a long stretch of centuries. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the way that we handle all these feelings outside religion, I think is fantastic. It just needs to be understood a little bit more poetically, yeah. a little bit more that we're all in this together and that there's no less meaning than there was before. The, the loss of religion for many people is about heaven. And I talk about that a good deal in the book because once I learned how many religions in the world through history and today do not have an afterlife, it made me realize that in the sort of Christian world, Jews don't really have the same kind of walking around, being with your people, still doing things alive and well, you're you, afterlife, the Christians do. But I grew up in the culture with it, right? And so the loss of heaven um, is a real loss for anybody who grows up in the culture with it. Um, but when you realize that most religions, most through history and today, do not have anything like that. So if there's any kind of afterlife, you're living in a kind of, you're, you're in a kind of suspended animation, uh, not doing anything. Maybe you've rejoined some large spirit, but you're not you. Um, you're certainly not meeting up with friends or anything. That's nowhere but Christianity um, and some of the ancient mystery religions. You know, I can list a few others, but sure. it's, yeah. the point is, for me, that was very liberating. Mm -hmm. I realized that human beings have have used religion to soothe and understand mostly without an afterlife. Mm -hmm. It just made me do what they did, which was just slightly turn my face to different things, just be attentive to different things. No religious people live with an absolute, oh, I just checked this book and it has every answer to my every need. It's a constant figuring out. A, a phrase you've used a couple times is, you know, that, that we're all in this together, that we're all connected in some sense. And, yeah. you know, one reason I find that interesting in the context of this conversation is that sense of being in something together was kind of a religious function for a long time. I mean, you would show up with a group of people to do something, which is yeah. rare almost these days. I mean, it's, yeah. I think it's why people find running groups or whatever, quilting groups, whatever, whatever it may be. But and I think about this as, you know, as a therapist, I think people fall in depression often when they feel 
almost no connection any longer mm-hmm. in the world around them to people, to the world, to the environment, to beauty. And that you keep coming back to this idea that there is a connection around us, yeah. whether it's through history or these texts or the sense of beauty. And I, I, I find that to be really important when we think about bigger questions of, of who we are and happiness and our good and our bad times. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love all that. And, and, and I can say that for me, one of the sort of epiphany origins of, of being a feeling so um, interested in this, but also so certain of, and, and as I've researched more under felt more certain about this connection. But uh, one of the places it starts is um, with my book against suicide, uh, Stay. I, I was depressed myself and I was actually sort of coming out of a, a depression where I, I had had ideational, you know, experiences. I had had suicidal thoughts um, and I was coming out of it and starting to feel strong a little bit. And mm-hmm. I get a call saying that a friend of mine, a poet, um, had taken her life. It, it, it happened again, a friend, uh, the friend who wrote the posthumous afterward to the first friend's book, uh, she took her life uh, about a year and a half later. And this happened to make it so that I sort of had a bunch of ideas and poetry that happened between the two events. And the fact that the second event happened made me share this stuff. Maybe maybe I, I would have been too scared um, to share this sort of anti-suicide poem that I'd written, the No Hemlock Rock. <laughs> that was the first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the thing about the suicide was this, that we hadn't been that close lately, me and either of these. We were all young women at the time. And I was shocked at how profoundly I felt the loss. And it made me do the math and realize that a lot of people would feel the loss if it were me. And I was shocked that I felt the loss even, you know, if I heard about a suicide of someone who was just like worked near me for a minute, you know, 20 years ago, I still felt this unbelievable shaking feeling to the fabric of everything. Hmm. And I started, I came up with a lot of metaphors I'm remembering now. One was that, you know, we're all in this giant warehouse and when somebody chooses to leave out the back door, we all feel the pressure change and the chill and and it's a big deal. Hmm. Um, and the closer you were, the worse it is, right? But um, it made me think about the positive side of it that I remember saying crying and useless is 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 fantastic. Crying and useless sitting on the edge of your bed is a million times better than dead. And that's not just for you. That's you're giving a gift to the rest of everyone. Everyone who ever knew you moves closer to that door themselves if you open it mm-hmm. and they feel the chill. And I don't want people to live for other people um in any kind of uh i don't want i'm not saying look you got to do this for other people i'm saying if you notice that staying alive is a gift to other people you may start to get the best feeling there is which is helping other people feeling um you know all the 
all the 12-step movements know that the way you stay away from what you're trying to stay away from is to help someone else who's in dire despair over yeah. it. Yeah. Um, that's the moment you feel strong. And so you have to have friends who sometimes need you because that's when you're going to feel strong. And so, yeah, I, and I, I with the anti-suicide stuff, I'm not talking about end of life care. Look, if that's, you know, I'm, I, I'm really just saying that, that believers have a reason not to kill themselves in that God told them not to, but re that reason isn't working anymore. The suicide notes tend to say, I think God will forgive me. They are feeling just as lonely and atomized and alienated, and they do not see any reason not to check out. But the fact is, that it's not up to you always to know what your value is. Sometimes the people around you know your value and you have to trust them. Can't you see now that that's true for other people, right? So it's true for you. So I'm not against suicide. If you talk to a bunch of people who are your friends and your medical people and they all say, yeah, you know, you, you had enough or anybody find one person who agrees with you. But most of us, when we're in that place, we know we couldn't find one person to agree with us. We're mm. just feeling desperate. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, you're loved. And it's not up to you to decide whether to kill yourself. I'm saying, you know, just like with road rage, uh, you sometimes feel like, like, I wish I, you know, I run that guy off the road if I could. But, you know, you're not actually murderous. And I'm saying when you have these suicidal feelings to brush them away with the same, no, that's not, that's not the thing. Mm -hmm. And it's amazingly powerful it, it really helps it's it only helps if it comes from you write yourself a note uh i do not want my worst mood to kill the rest of me please do not do this mm. um that works for people but yeah uh to get back to the new book that whole experience of realization and then research and talking to all sorts of people uh made me feel part of a fabric of humanity in a way that i don't think I could have gotten to without that kind of um, combination of tragedy and poetry and um, just the way it happened to unfold um, because I did start asking people not to kill themselves and get such a positive reaction that it made it worth exploring uh, philosophically and, mm. you know, more carefully. And yeah, what I found is through history, there is every reason for us to feel connected I've been reading this stuff about neuroscience and about the way the plant world interacts through fungi and every aspect of the world tells me that we do not know everything that's going on. That is not a reason to fantasize about all sorts of positive things. We know the difference between, you know, a guess and a delusion because a delusion tends to be very self-serving, right? Um, it hurts to doubt it. But we can say, if we look at meerkats in the wild and see how they behave, you know, in this really communal group, all doing different things and communicating to each other, imagine then taking one of those animals into a lab without looking at the group and just trying to understand it alone. Are you gonna get anywhere? Hmm. Are you gonna say anything real about that animal? And I think that, that something to that degree is obviously going on with human beings. If you imagine yourself alone on the planet, 
you wouldn't eat three meals a day and try to do particular things. You would, you would not be in any world of meaning. You would have to create one out of the dregs of what you remember from the old one. Um, we are one creature practically, and we're smart enough to exit that in many ways, but we have to also be smart enough to see that our hearts belong with each other. I don't know what it means, and I'm certainly not saying anything near the supernatural, but I am saying it feels like we're connected. I know I don't understand everything. It doesn't seem anti-science. I often say I might believe in life after death if we were the only conscious creatures on this planet, but the, you know, the mice and the ants and there's just there's all these different consciousnesses around and i don't believe that anything exists after the ant is smushed it doesn't seem right it seems it seems against my notion of rationality to imagine that for some reason we go on afterwards but the idea that as a group we are connected and meaningful in ways that are hard for each individual to see my God, that seems obvious, right? Mm. And so I just think all it takes is to stop being so shocked that Christianity isn't true, which makes us say, all these things, they're not true. No, all those things are still true. They just don't come from the imaginary God thing. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW, and my guest this hour is Jennifer Michael Hecht, philosopher, historian, poet, and author of The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives. And is there a poem that you hold dear, that you carry with you during the good and bad times? Please share it with our Facebook community. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or by searching on Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back with part two after this short break. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard poet and author Jennifer Michael Hecht say you don't have to be an avid poetry reader to enjoy reading a few good poems. She also very openly talked about suicidality and the profound interconnections we all share as humans. Let's now jump back in, where Hecht guides us through a few poems that provide a sense of ritual and meaning for those leading a secular life. You know, one of the hottest forms right now of therapy is psychedelic therapy, all the big studies coming out of Johns Hopkins, and, you know, what's the reason that people tend to feel better after those experiences, it's a feeling of connection to, I agree. to I the agree. world in, in a very mysterious but profound way. And, and Just it's not knowing that you could ever have felt that way is mm, enough to right. make you come back and be like, okay, okay. Maybe things are worth living after all when I feel that towards yeah. the world around me and the people around me. So I. I wanted to say that. And here we are. We could keep chatting. We could not even talk about one of the poems in your book. This is <laughs> this is the direction we're heading. So I have to stop that because I, this is an important yes. book you wrote. And 
I know that, you know, two of the moments that we tend to lean on poetry and that tend to unify us are um, weddings and funerals, right? And I know that was very much on your mind when you were putting this together. And I want this to take us towards a reading of a very, very beautiful and famous poem by E.E. Cummings. So can you can you take us there and share what he had to say and why you thought that needed to be uh, published in the book? This is a beautiful poem, and it's it had to be in the book partially because this book is a little bit based on the fact that people use poetry in weddings and funerals. I call it cultural liturgy in the book. We have chosen certain texts and certain behaviors um, as just we do this at weddings and at funerals. And um, this poem shows up a lot at both of them. And we'll we'll talk about maybe why, but first I'll read it to you. It has um, three stanzas. It's basically the size of a sonnet. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful, you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Mm. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. It's a killer, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think people... I think people are attracted to it for that first and last line. Um, and then they get more from the inside. But let's just think about that first and last line. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Um, I'm never without it, right? And 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 in in the book, I talk about um, how, how this poem means. It, it's both talking about the other person as a sort of talisman you're you've got them with you and so you're okay but you're also telling them uh you know you can forget yourself i've got you i've got you um which is which is this powerful feeling for two people to give to each other and i think one of the wonderful things about the poem is that that the line that people love the most comes first and is repeated at the end. Um, In fact, I suggest sometimes when a poem is short uh, to read it twice or more reasonably in many cases to, to prepare a little patter, a little, a little uh, bit of speech for before or after the poem. Um, One reason for that is that, poems are complicated. The good ones always have a little pain in them. Mm. And you may feel like it's inappropriate um, 
but you can say before you read the poem, uh, we chose this poem for this line. It's got some darkness in it, and um, and we we you know we love that about a great poem. But it's this line that we you know each time you say this line, you actually read the line again, and you can you can get to the pleasure of like saying the chorus of your song uh, a few times because you don't want to blow by it, especially when um, sometimes the rest of the poem is going to be a little opaque to people. Um, there are poems that are very clear, and even those are are hard to take in when you're sitting at an event and everything else is going on, right? So um, I, I do talk about that a lot in the chapters on public events where we use poems to, yeah, to choose somewhat uh, short ones and um, to try sometimes to, to use simple ones. But when you fall in love with something like this, which is very complex, um, and you can take it apart and it unfolds like a flower, there are so many sort of messages and ideas in in the lines of this poem, even in the way that he structures it, jamming together certain areas without any spaces and and parentheses upon parentheses, getting more and more secret and internal. But you know, the root of the root and the bud of the bud. These are these are natural terms that sort of remind us of of the human of sexuality and birth and and rebirth and the continuation process that nature is it, you know we, we keep talking about religion but um the other thing that people have lost that usually sustains them um is nature nature is just when you live in it it's constantly reminding you that death is is it's barely worth calling it death it's not a separate thing that the forest is in its is in its constant continuation and things are constantly flowing in and out of the system that doesn't mean you want your friend to die it doesn't mean you want to die but it is a little bit less of a sense that of of outrage that we can sometimes have in the world where we expect our refrigerator to last a certain amount of time and we 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 expect things to be reasonable and how could they possibly install death into this machine i'm in it's just bizarre Mm. but it's not a machine and when you're in the natural world that part of the horror of being human is different um but you're you may be lacking in the togetherness cultural part that we get in the cities sometimes just walking in the crowd um the point is to start to understand that outside religion brilliant sensitive spiritual poetic people have built a world of art and love and ideas and we just um we just need to take that little extra step and see that all of it is a kind of poetic practice and that your life means something. It means something to you and it means something to the people around you and it means something to the human story that you try to choose good sometimes. None of us do it all the time. None of us think about it all the time, but I'm saying we're allowed to talk about it. The idea of the good didn't die with religion. How could it have? It's ridiculous. Religion is a trackable human thing. It happened at a certain moment. So in The Wonder Paradox, I'm very practical in the way that I start with a question that somebody really asked me um, 
or a comment that really threw me um, at one of my talks or in my real life. And I tell the story of it. Um, I was surprised to find how many of those stories when I really dug deep, I could remember some of the bizarre and interesting, exciting parts of them. So I told the little story with the question. And then I turned right to, well, how would religion handle that? And, and you know, with shame, with gratitude, with, um, with weddings or funerals or the birth of a child, um, religions have different ways, sometimes very similar, but always some variety in the ways that human beings lift each other up in these moments. And so I just give you a couple of pages of, of you know, a page or two of, of um, here's what this religion does, here's what this religion does. And, uh, and then I turn to how science and art, you know, how our culture without religion um, sometimes deals with, uh, on the chapter in depression, I talk about, you know, pills and, and, and therapy. Um, but then I say, you know, what, what poetry could do and how we can see this from a poetic stance and we can talk about the love and the good and and morality and meaning in the poetic sphere um which is not in between but separate from the religious sphere and the scientific realist sphere the poetic is not making up and believing anything that cannot be proven but it is aware that being human often includes all sorts of experiences which are not even helped by being explained hmm. having a tiny transcend transcendental moment when you got your baby to go to sleep and you're exhausted and you hate everything and you look out the window and the light is just a certain way and you just suddenly feel so you know poetic intense beautiful strange and i don't care if we figure out a scientific way of talking about that it doesn't explaining it doesn't explain it away we live in the human world all the time and in the human world we still deal with all these feelings and experiences um including being overwhelmed hmm. and you know you can have a poem for that waiting for you. And what I like about asking people to, to all think about the, the great world poems, I mean, you can sprinkle in the poems of the best way to get poetry right now is, is just being on social media and, and having a wide group of friends. Someone will post a poem. Is that true in your experience? Mm, uh, certainly. I mean, there's... Yeah. So I'm getting them all the time and they, they knock me out. People choose remarkable poems by poets I love that I never somehow noticed that poem. This happens to me on a daily basis. And I think if other people are um, interested, you know, made a little bit more aware, just if a poem blows you away, save it, save it, put it someplace and say, I'm going to read that again on the next full moon or the next the next leap year or i talk about all different kinds of ways of giving yourself a sort of schedule or a program that's based on things that already happen and for the most part you know it's what's going to make you go to go to your poem collection and i do think you should put together a tiny little book of poems hmm. i think that people who read a ton of poems 
almost don't have to do it physically because we're already experiencing that. I think if you read a ton of poems, you you already have, um, you know, Auden's uh, funeral poem, funeral blues in your head, and it will come to mind. Um, but if you don't, you should. Um, you should yeah. have that. I mm -hmm. don't know if you're going to read it, but I want to know that you have it there, that you could, that you have something that you have made special by choosing, and that because it's a world-class poem, you are going to meet other people in your life who have chosen it, if a lot of people choose poems. I yeah. mean, those of mm -hmm. us who read a lot of poetry, we do. We have these conversations and we say, yeah, funeral blues. I mean, and then that's something else. I first heard funeral blues, or I don't know, maybe I'd read it before. I probably had read it before, but I was first blown away by funeral blues in Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I encounter people all over the world who are embarrassed to say that they found their favorite poem in a movie. And I, I always say, no, the culture put all this money and talent and time into giving us a fantastic reading. We should take the assist. We should all use that poem if we're all turned on by it. And when you get sent a poem, it does come charged with someone else choosing it. Um, whereas opening an anthology um, you, you know that somebody chose it, but a while ago. But if you just go into a bookstore um, and and go over to the to the poetry section, or if you go into an indie bookstore and ask the owner for some great poetry, you can also get contemporary poems that other people are going to be reading because they're on the shelves in bookstores right now. Um, but of course, it doesn't have to be a poem that everyone else is using or anyone else is using. I just like that extra little aspect that I am suggesting we all have a sort of a poetic prayer book, um, but I'm not saying we should all have the same one. Mm -hmm. But it also would be nice if, since we're all sort of taking from the same incredibly beautiful pool, of the greatest poems and the poems that people around us are reading right now, we will have some uh, some situations where you know, oh, where we say, oh, Zimborska is also your go-to for moments where you just want to be contemplative, but not you're not feeling contemplative. Mm -hmm. Wisława Zimborska is a Polish poet who is she got the Nobel Prize. Um, she she lived into this century. Um, though experienced the horrors of the last century. And um, she is one of the great poets of just actually talking about philosophical questions in regular language, but because it's a poem and because she's a brilliant poet, uh, you just, it knocks you out for the rest of your life. Um, not, you know, not everyone, but if you want to read poetry that um, you can pick one and anyone and you're likely to come upon a, a philosophical conundrum a bit of a paradox a bit of a thing and you know it's a very short emotional and really deep way of 
of having that experience um, of sort yeah. of going in and sitting in a cathedral. Well, here's a portable cathedral mm -hmm. and texts have always been that. Yeah. Um, in fact, Judaism wasn't written down until the Babylonian captivity and we were thrown out of the temple and they broke the temple and there was nothing. We thought, okay, Judaism's over. Well, what if we wrote down everything we used to do there? And that was it. That's the Torah. Yeah. That's the Bible. Hmm. Well, I'd love to end maybe with one last reading of something that comes to mind. Mm. I, I know there's there's so many great ones in here, but maybe considering where we've we landed over all these great topics, is there something that, that comes to mind? For one thing, I in the baby welcoming section, I I definitely suggest that people write a little something themselves if they want. That's a kind of a, a welcome to the world. Um, and and I, I kind of made up a few myself just to show um, that you really can say sort of anything, and um, but in this spirit. So, um, so here's one. Uh, welcome, welcome, dear child, to our absurd and precious world, to our corroded world, to the opulent and the scarce, to the underworlds of feeling, to forgiveness and remorse, to love, to the lean and the taut, and the slack relaxed, to the wonder of flying squirrels and hanging bats. Welcome to cows and cats, storms and facts, to parallels and swings, and why we are so happy, and why sad singers sing, and that the sea is hiding fish, and that all wings have dreams, and dreams have wings. I wrote even another one that's in the book, but I'll just say at the end of this chapter, uh, if the old ways seem awkward now, we'll need to find new ways to celebrate, especially for when we are flabbergasted and baby blasted by love and wonder, scared half daffy and clinically exhausted. We can't believe we've done this or that we can give all that needs to be given. Yet we can't believe our luck so far either, holding the tiny new being. All year long, we see the light in the garden break fire against the greenery and stone, hope and spleen, and can't believe the luck of it to be so situated as to see the light like this, just as it is today. You deserve a moment to stop everything and celebrate it all. Then hmm. summer comes, and the greenery displaces snow with the boundless intention of youth with something to prove. The garden is ephemeral, yet Brooklyn is perennial. Something between the garden and the light is Brooklyn. The garden is what is created by our strange, sustained astonishment after all these years. Hmm. It's been such a wonderful pleasure to be joined this hour by Jennifer Michael Hecht. We've been discussing her new book, The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence in the Poetry of Our Lives. Thank you so much for... For, for just joining me in this. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was incredibly wonderful. I really, really appreciate it. Great conversation. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And we hope you enjoyed today's discussion on poetry and how it can perfectly encapsulate a whole range of emotions and our shared humanity and maybe provides a framework for the non-believers out there. Please share your thoughts and keep the conversation going in our Facebook group, where we're nearly at a 1,000 members, which is a big goal for this show. 
we'd also love for you to share one of your favorite poems. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.